everybody. Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. This is episode number three. Today we're going to be diving into an alien abduction story. And this particular story is actually one of the most famous alien abduction cases out there. And that is the story of Travis Walton. Now, Travis Walton's story is one of those stories that at first you may not believe, but the more that you learn about him and learn about his experience, it might just change your mind about alien abduction. Alien abduction is one of those topics that is truly just so scary and also such a mysterious thing at the same time because we don't know if aliens are 100% real or not. We don't know if they're actually doing abductions. But after hearing experiences like Travis Walton's, it definitely makes you stop and think maybe all of this is for real but before we get into travis's story i just wanted to first say thank you guys so much for checking out lights out it's been an awesome experience so far i've really enjoyed doing this type of content and hopefully you guys have enjoyed it too i also wanted to give my brother joel a huge shout out for giving me a ton of help with getting the show off of the ground but let's not fuck around anymore and let's get into the story so travis walton's story begins on wednesday november 5th 1975 this happened many years ago but it's something that travis still talks about to this day in great detail now in 1975 travis walton was only 22 years old and he was working in the apache sickreaves national forest in springerville arizona he was employed by his best friend named mike rogers who had been doing contract work for the united states forest service for over nine years now travis along with mike worked with ken peterson John Goulet, Steve Pierce, Alan Dallas, and Dwayne Smith. So a bunch of guys just working out in the forest, cutting down trees. And the reason for cutting down the trees is to reduce wildfires. They're doing a bunch of work to prevent fires from starting out there and having all this fuel to burn off of. Now, all these guys are actually pretty close friends, and they work together on a daily basis, and they all lived in the town of Snowflake, Arizona. What a bizarre name for a town in Arizona, Snowflake which was not far from Springerville. So Travis and all the guys had been working all day and it finally got to about 6 p.m. when they decided that they were going to call it a day and head back home. And so that's when they all piled into Mike Rogers' double cab 65 international truck and headed home for the day. Now on their drive back, this is when shit starts happening. Okay, so they're driving home and all of a sudden they spot an unusual bright light shining behind a hill on the right side of their vehicle and at first they were like okay what is this glow coming through is it the sun but then once they realized that wait the sun had already set a half hour ago what the hell is this light that's when they start freaking out a little bit so all the guys are in the truck and they're trying to figure out what this bright light is if it's not the sun maybe it's headlights from another vehicle or even hunters in the area which i don't know whether they have a bonfire going I mean, I don't know, or they have some type of spotlight that they're using for hunting. Who knows? But the reason the light became more suspicious is because it seemed like it was coming from a higher point than the crest of the ridge was. Then if it's not the sun, what is it? Why is it hovering above the mountains? So out of curiosity, I mean, I know if I saw a bright light and, you know, driving home from the mountains or something, I'd probably want to drive towards it too. And that's exactly what they did. They started driving towards the light, trying to identify it and figure out what's going on with it. And obviously this thing's kind of just hovering up in the air. So they are trying to hurry to it so that they don't miss it. And in order to do it, they had to go through this evergreen thicket in order to get to the light. They're just kind of going wherever they thought they needed to in order to reach it. And as they got closer 
and they had an unobstructed view of this mysterious light. The crew was in complete shock when they saw, you know, once they got close enough that this bright light was a flying saucer, a large disc-like machine hovering stationary just a few feet above the nearby trees. Now that they're actually close enough to see this flying saucer, the appearance of this thing is beautiful. It's this glassy disc. It has these metallic features to it, but then it's also glowing. And when they were looking at it, they were like, I don't see any antennas. There's no hatches. Like, how does anybody get in this thing? And there was just what looked like windows visible on the outside of the craft. And according to them, they said that it was around eight feet high and 20 feet in diameter. So that's a pretty big object just hovering in the air. Once Mike actually stopped the truck when they arrived, Travis jumped immediately out of the passenger side door and started walking towards this hovering saucer for a closer look. And the reason for this was because Travis was afraid it would just fly away and he'd miss the chance of a lifetime to see what this thing really was. And I got to say, if I was Travis, I would do the exact same thing. I jump out of the car, run towards it. Who cares what happens? This is a unique experience that I'll never get again, and no one else will either. And of course, when Travis just jumped out and ran towards this thing, everybody else started freaking out, was like, Travis, get back here. Like, what are you doing? Who knows what this thing might do to you? But Travis completely ignored the rest of the crew's requests and decided to get as close to this hovering disc as possible. And what's so crazy about this thing and just so eerie about it is that it hovers in the air making no sound just this giant disc like it's dead in the air just hovering there with this eerie glow around it and travis is like fuck it i'm gonna see what this thing is travis gets extremely close to this thing in fact he actually got underneath it so that he could look up directly beneath the flying saucer and travis's view of this thing is incredible so as travis is standing beneath this hovering craft the crew starting to hear this turbine-like sound, like a jet engine type of sound, start happening. Travis is obviously underneath this thing, so he's not hearing it the same way that the crew is, but he said that the strange tones were so mixed that it was impossible to compare them to any sound that I have ever heard. So, not really like a jet engine, something similar to that sound, but something he had never heard before. All of a sudden, though, the hovering saucer begins to wobble from side to side. And out of fear, Travis is like, I got to get the fuck away from this thing because who knows what's going to happen next. And just as he starts making his way back to the truck, he's then struck by a powerful, bright beam of blue light that comes shooting out from the bottom of the craft towards him. And people describe the sound made by this bright beam of blue light as a sharp crackling sound, almost like a lightning strike. That's fucking crazy to think about. And Travis says during this time, he saw and heard nothing. And all he felt was a numbing force of a blow that felt like a high voltage electrocution. The crew describes seeing Travis getting hit by this beam of light as something that they've never seen before. So obviously it didn't look exactly like lightning. It was something similar to that, but it was also making like a turbine sound. So you can imagine how fucking scary that would have been to watch your friend get blasted by this laser beam, essentially. And as he's being blasted by the laser beam, his body's getting flown up into the air and then flying back 10 feet backwards, so getting pummeled by this force of this beam to the point where he's 
hitting the ground so hard that he's just like a rag doll being dragged along the ground as he's rolling. And eventually his body came to a complete stop where Travis was just laying motionless on the ground. And Travis actually recalls this moment later on and he said that my mind just sank quickly into an unfeeling blackness. I didn't even see what hit me. But from the instant I felt that paralyzing blow, I did not see, hear, or feel anything anymore. Basically, he came face to face with death, it seems like. Now, obviously, his friends or the crew that he was with think that they just witnessed Travis's death, that this was the end of Travis. And they decide to react in fear and panic. And they just speed away from Travis and leave him there on the ground because they're just freaking out, I guess, that maybe this thing's going to get them. And the best thing that they can do is just hightail it out of there and go get help. And not only that, I mean, at one point, I think they even believed that they were being chased by this flying craft. So that's why they were like, you know, we don't all want to die. So they took off without Travis. Once they realized that the craft was not chasing them, they came to their senses and realized that holy shit, we probably shouldn't have left Travis there. So they decided to turn around and go back and rescue him. But when they arrived back at the site, the flying craft was no longer there. And Travis seemingly wasn't there either. They spent some serious time searching for him in the area to try to locate Travis, but they never were able to find him. So at this point, they're freaking out a little bit that now they can't find Travis. So maybe this craft actually took him or worse. So they head back to town to try and contact the police. At about 7.30 p.m., the police are called by Ken Peterson, who is one of the crew members. And they called the police in Heber, Arizona, because that was the closest place to where they were at at the time, in order to inform them that Travis had gone missing, and obviously about what had happened to him and what they had seen. So once the crew arrived at the police station, they met with Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison, who then met with them at a nearby shopping center in order to hear about what had just happened to them that night. At this point, everybody is distraught, and some of them are even in tears as they're telling the sheriff about what had happened to their friend Travis. Obviously, the sheriff was skeptical at first because they're telling him that their friend got shot by a UFO, essentially, and he's not believing the story at this point. After meeting with the crew, the sheriff immediately notified his supervisor, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, who told him to keep the crew in Heber until he could arrive with Officer Copeland to interview them. It was also mentioned that Sheriff Ellison, uh, who interviewed the logging crew at the time, uh, after hearing their story, he was definitely convinced uh, that they they could have been telling the truth. Uh, Obviously, he was skeptical about the UFO story. And I mean, you don't hear that every day, right? So Uh, But he later did mention that after he spoke with those men that if they were acting, they were definitely good at it. It was that convincing. I'm honestly not surprised that that's what he thought, because to see, you know, these six logging men that obviously have a tough job come in here crying their eyes out about a really traumatic event that just happened to them. And obviously this craft scared them to the next dimension like this was seriously seriously scary to watch and obviously see their friend get thrown back through the air hit with a beam of light potentially thinking that he's dead so obviously it was enough for the sheriff to be like okay we got to look into this further we got to see if we can find travis because now he's missing and obviously he doesn't know 
what to think of this UFO, right? I mean, you hear UFO and it could be military. I mean, it could be anything. It's not necessarily like definitely an alien craft that, that attacked him. So they are trying to figure out how they're going to tackle this problem that they have of where's Travis. When the other officers arrived at the shopping center, they began interviewing all the different crew members. And Mike insisted on returning to the scene immediately in order to have the police bring tracking dogs with them to try to pick up on Travis's scent because he was just there not that long ago and hopefully track him down. But of course, the police did not have any dogs available that night, but they did agree to return to the scene in order to start searching for Travis. And once they arrived back at the scene of where they had last seen Travis, the police officers are becoming very suspicious of the story at this point because there's no physical evidence to back up their claims. So the police were looking for an imprint of Travis uh, where his body last laid on the ground there after being tossed 20 feet. And to, I mean, to their surprise, they noticed that there wasn't any body imprint of Travis on the ground. It did really start to grow the police's suspicions after they saw that. Right. Because they're like, no physical evidence, then their story might just be complete bullshit. But despite all of this, and they're not being the evidence of Travis at first, the police brought him back up as well as volunteers in order to have the surrounding area searched. But after a few hours of extensive searching, they did not find a trace of Travis anywhere. And the day that this all happened, Travis was actually only wearing jeans and a denim jacket. So police were very worried that if Travis was lost, he might fall victim to hypothermia because of the weather at that time. You know, it's warm there, but at night it gets really cold. After hours of searching for Travis, Mike and Sheriff Copeland decided to leave the scene in order to tell Travis's mother, Mary Kelly, about what had happened that night. And when they arrived at her small ranch in Bear Creek, which is only about 10 miles from Snowflake, Mike told her what had happened to Travis. And when Mary heard what had happened, she was obviously shocked because this story is unbelievable at first and had to have Mike repeat the story to her a few times in order for her to actually understand what had happened that night. But she also asked Mike calmly if anyone other than the police and eyewitnesses have heard the story. Now, Sheriff Copeland thought this response was very odd and it contributed to this growing suspicion among the police that something other than a UFO might have been responsible for Travis's disappearance because in their heads, things aren't adding up. At around 3 a.m., Mary called her second oldest child, Dwayne Walton, and told him the news about Travis. And after their conversation, Dwayne, of course, left his home in Glendale, Arizona, and headed up to Snowflake. And by the next morning of November 6, law enforcement officials and volunteers had thoroughly searched the area around where Travis was last seen. And throughout all these searches and all these people coming this area, not one trace of Travis was ever found, which obviously with no evidence whatsoever, the police are starting to severely question what had happened here and that maybe this wasn't a UFO abduction, but instead some type of tragic accident or even worse, homicide. Obviously, once Dwayne got there, he wanted to get the search parties going again because when they returned to the site that day on Saturday, November 8th, there was nobody searching there anymore. So they're obviously pissed off because their brother's still out there and no one seems to be looking for him. So they head over to Sheriff Gillespie's office and they start drilling him about why aren't you guys still looking for Travis? 
And obviously the sheriff is like, oh shit, I guess I got to take these concerns seriously. And by that afternoon, he had his police back out there searching with helicopters, horse mounted officers, and even off-road vehicles. So with all those searching going on, obviously people are starting to catch wind of what's going on. And so did the media because by Saturday, Travis Walton's disappearance had made international news and seemingly by the hour, news reporters, ufologists, and just curious people started arriving in Snowflake, Arizona in response to what they were seeing on the news. And one of the individuals that came was a Phoenix UFO investigator named Fred Silvanus, who interviewed Mike and Dwayne about Travis's disappearance. And obviously they told him about what had happened to Travis and the UFO and the beam of light and then not being able to find him shortly after. And obviously they have major concern for their brother's well-being and his safety at this point. And also Mike and Dwayne expressed to Fred that they felt like the police were just not taking this that seriously or treating it as if their brother was truly in danger. Now while they're being interviewed by this UFO investigator, he's recording the entire interview with Mike and Dwayne. And during this interview, Mike and Dwayne make some statements that they didn't know at the time would come back to haunt them once heard by the people doubting their story. Because on the recordings, Mike mentioned that because of Travis's disappearance and the subsequent search, he would not be able to complete the Forest Service contract and that he hoped the search for Travis would mitigate the situation. Dwayne also said that he and Travis were always interested in UFOs and that 12 years earlier, He had witnessed a UFO like the one Travis and the logging crew had just encountered. Dwayne also mentioned that if he or Travis ever did encounter a UFO, they would try to get as close to it as they could. And Dwayne even said in the interview that Travis would not be injured by the aliens because they do not harm humans. Without even knowing it, Dwayne and Mike's recorded statements really started laying the foundation for this alternative interpretation of Travis's disappearance and just his case in general. What's difficult about these statements that were made by Dwayne is that Travis doesn't necessarily agree with all these statements. And later on, he actually comes out and says that he never really did have an interest in UFOs. And this was something that his brother just sort of made up. In addition to the crew being interviewed extensively by different people, police officers were also interviewing Mary Walton at her home. And let's just say the police were not being very nice to Mary. I mean, they were really drilling her because I think the suspicions that this is a hoax or this is just a made-up story are really starting to piss these officers off. I mean, they are probably just trying to get the truth out of Mary because they think that she might actually know what happened to Travis. So they're sort of just berating her with questions. And once Dwayne comes home and finds that his mother is literally in tears as the police are questioning her, gets pretty pissed off. And he tells the police that they are not welcome there anymore unless they had something new to ask because they're just asking the same questions over and over again, literally interrogating her. And due to lack of physical evidence that the police could link to Travis's disappearance, they did start to target Mary at some point, literally interrogating her, trying to have her create statements that they could use uh, in this case. But Mary wasn't having it. and Basically trip her up. Literally, yeah. Which is a common police interrogation tactic. Try to see if you'll tell the same story over and over again or if your story will switch up subtly but obviously Dwayne counseled his mother and told her that only tell them what they need to know and that at any point if you feel like you need to end the interview and go back inside then do that at this point you are not required to speak to the police at all so after the initial interviews by police on Saturday Monday morning came around which is November 10th by this time and Mike Rogers and the crew were then subjected to polygraph examinations 
administered by Cy Gilson, who is also an employee of Arizona's Department of Public Safety. By bringing in the polygraph examinations, it's pretty clear that the police were fairly certain that this was a made-up story, and they wanted to really get some proof of this. And what better way than to polygraph somebody? So that's exactly what they did. They pulled each of them aside separately and hooked them up to the polygraph machine and started questioning them about what had happened to Travis. And this included asking them questions like if any of the men had actually hurt Travis themselves or if they knew where Travis's body was buried and also just question their encounter with this UFO in general. What's interesting about the results of the polygraph examinations is, is that all of the crew members denied harming Travis or knowing who had harmed him. They all denied knowing where Travis's body was. And they all insisted that they did, in fact, see a UFO. And the UFO was responsible for what had happened to Travis. Now, what's interesting, though, is that all of the crew, except for one individual, Alan Dallas's results were actually conclusive, which means that Alan Dallas's results were inconclusive, meaning there might be something more going on there and not necessarily that he was telling the full truth like the other men did who passed the polygraph exam. It's also important to remember that polygraph tests aren't always 100% correct. Uh, there, there is room for error during those tests. Which obviously means that even though all of them except for one were conclusive, that there still could be some deception there and there could be mistakes that were made during the polygraph test. You just really never know. So that's why you can't always take polygraph examination results at 100% truth. The police were also skeptical of Alan Dallas uh, because he did have a very aggressive nature to him. Always on edge, always looking like to cause trouble. Uh, and even some of the crew members, including Travis, remembered Alan just trying to pick a fight with anybody he could. Uh, just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it could have even just been the fact that his were inconclusive is because he just was full of emotion and could have just been kind of out of control at that point because he's upset with how everything is probably upset that he's being polygraphed at all and that people aren't believing their story. So I think it's definitely a a note that you should make that Alan Dallas might have had something to do with it. But at the same time, the fact that all the other men, their results were conclusive. And in fact, Sheriff Gillespie even stated that there's no doubt that they're telling the truth, which obviously shows that he's believing their story more and more now that these polygraph results are conclusive. But let's shift back to Travis because Travis just got hit by this beam of light and he's slowly starting to regain consciousness. But then he begins to experience this overwhelming sensation of just sheer pain. And at first, you know, he's just kind of like slightly moving himself around and it's kind of pulling him in and out of consciousness. And he's feeling super burned all over, like actual burning sensations all over, even on the inside of his body. He's essentially waking up from being knocked out and having those general sensations of just coming back to consciousness and reality in general and just trying to pull yourself back in to make sense of what's going on around you and finally he's able to get his vision to a clear point where he's actually able to see what's going on around him and this is when travis realizes that he's laying on his back on this raised hard surface table and as he's laying on his back he noticed that there's this light source above him which is super close to him to the point where it's right above him and he's able to make out the ceiling above it 
quite a ways away. So you can imagine how it would be to be in this position of being in this strange place on a, a gurney essentially and just looking up at the ceiling and you're just kind of starting to take in or what's going on around you and as he's looking up he's starting to look at the ceiling and realizing that it's kind of crooked there's like one small end and one large one on the other end and he's not able to figure out where he is at first he's thinking maybe i'm in a hospital or something but he has no idea where he is and not only that he's feeling super uncomfortable i mean he's strapped to this table it's extremely hot and humid wherever he is the air seems to be difficult to breathe and it smelled slightly stale to him and he starts to feel like he's sweating and he could feel that his jacket was still on his body along with the rest of his work clothes but he also noticed that there was this strange device attached to his body and this thing is about five inches thick and it's extending from his armpits to a few inches above his belt and it's sort of curved down to the middle of each side of his rib cage and it looked like it was made out of this shiny metal as he's kind of looking over his body and looking at this strange device attached to him he starts to make out three blurry figures with white masks and caps starting to lean over him and at this point his eyes kind of like go wide open all of a sudden and his visions finally cleared and that's when he realized he was looking directly into the eyes of this hideous creature above him this creature slowly leaning in over travis and travis is looking back at it it's got these big creepy brown eyes and according to travis these brown eyes the actual irises themselves were like twice the size of a human eye so you can imagine these big old eyes on this creepy looking creature just looking down over you obviously you don't want to continue staring into this creature's eyes so travis is kind of darting all over the place and that's when he notices that there's two more similar creatures also staring at him and these creatures just stood still just staring at travis with no sort of sound coming from them whatsoever and according to travis these creatures had bulging oversized craniums and small jaw structures they were of humanoid type they had two legs two arms and each of their hands had five fingers each as well as a head with the normal human arrangement of features and each of them was a little under five feet in height so they look like these short humanoid type creatures but they have these huge eyes like the proportion of eyes to mouth are very different from an actual human and not only that their thin bones are covered with this white pale chalky skin and they're wearing this like single piece coverall type suit which was orangish brown in color and according to travis he couldn't see any sort of grain in the material like it didn't look like it was sewn together in any way shape or form in fact the clothes did not have any seams at all nor did they have buttons zippers or snaps and the creatures were just wearing this generic pinkish tan footwear and obviously laying on the table he's not able to really make out what their shoes looked like in great detail but he could tell that the creatures had very small feet he also noticed that their hands were small and delicate and hairless and they had these thin round fingers which looked soft and unwrinkled and their bald heads were disproportionately larger than their smaller bodies and they had these small rounded noses with little oval nostrils they also didn't have any eyebrows or eyelashes travis was just looking straight at the eyes man definitely super creepy and at this point travis is starting to freak out and rightfully so i mean i'd be panicking too if that was my view but he knew that he had to try to defend himself from these creatures because obviously he doesn't know what they're about to do to him are they going to fuck with him what are they going to do experiment on him probe him attack him kill him i mean he has no idea what they're about to do to him I would be in complete 
panic too. If, if I woke up on what it seemed like an operating table and I had not one, but two more of these things just staring at me and, and not making any type of verbal response or saying anything like I can't, I can't even imagine what Travis went through. That is just gnarly. Yeah. Now these creatures are starting to like walk towards Travis with their arms out looking like they're about to grab him. So Travis is like, I got to defend myself. And he grabs a tube from a nearby utensil bench in order to defend himself. And he begins screaming and swinging this tube at these creatures, threatening that if they got too close, he would hit them. And just as Travis prepared to attack one of them, the creatures all of a sudden turned away and then just ran out of the exam room. And even when Travis was like out of control, looking like he was about to fuck them up, the creatures never once made a single sound, which makes you wonder like, do these creatures communicate verbally or are they telepathic? And if they are aliens, then obviously they've got some telepathic abilities. Yeah, I was thinking telepathic as well because it was also mentioned that those creatures didn't even talk to each other. They, they just looked at one another and looked at Travis and reached out their, their hands and all these different movements. But that is just super creepy that there was no verbal action going on at all. Definitely makes the experience way scarier for sure because you have no idea what they're thinking, what they're about to do to you. And yeah, it's just creepy that they're not even speaking to each other. But who knows? Maybe they're speaking telepathically. After the creatures leave the room, Travis starts to make his way out of the exam room as well. And after he leaves the exam room, he goes down a hallway, which then leads him into a spherical room, which only had a large chair in the middle of it. It's like almost like they wanted him to go into that this room, it seems like. And when Travis entered the room, the chair was facing backwards, so Travis could not see who was actually sitting in it, if there was somebody in there. And as he's starting to creep towards the chair, lights begin to slowly turn on in the room. And once Travis got to the chair, he sits down in it and quickly notices that the room was filled with lights, like stars projected on a round planetarium ceiling. And while sitting in the chair, he noticed that each arm had an oddly shaped molded handle on them. And when Travis pushed the lever, he saw that the lights would start to rotate around him slowly. And when he released it, the lights would remain in their new position. That's a really fucking cool room if you think about it. It's like a planetarium room on there. Or maybe it's like their mapping program or something. Like that's how they pilot. They pilot from this chair or something. Really crazy to think about. But then suddenly... Travis hears this sound coming from behind him and lo and behold, he sees the large eyed creatures again. But to his surprise, he also saw a tall human figure wearing blue coveralls with a glassy helmet. Obviously seeing a human was a welcoming sight at this point. So Travis tries to ask them several questions, but the man only grinned and gave the follow me signal to him in which Travis got up and followed this man down a hallway and then out a door, which led to an aircraft hangar. And in the hangar, Travis saw other disc-shaped crafts that looked like the one that he had recently encountered. And this strange man led Travis to another room which had three more humans. And at this point, the man gave Travis a signal to take a seat at the table with the other humans. And once Travis was seated, the woman in the room walked toward him and placed what appeared to be an oxygen mask on his face. And before Travis could do anything, he lost consciousness completely. Seemingly as fast as he lost consciousness... Travis woke back up, and he found himself on the cold pavement outside of a gas station in Heber, Arizona. And as he was waking up, he caught a quick glimpse of what 
looked like a dish-shaped craft hovering just above the highway. Then before he could get a good look at it, it quickly shot upwards into the sky and then vanished. And while it did this, it gave off no light or sound as it left. Travis then slowly got up off of the ground and was able to stumble to a nearby telephone where he called his brother-in-law, Grant Neff. At this point in time, it's 12.05 a.m. and Grant answered the phone. And Travis told him that he was at the Exxon station in Heber and that he needed a ride. And Grant really thought this was weird and actually thought this was a prank call at first. But Travis was like, no, 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 this is really me and I really need you to come get me. So Grant obviously thought this was really weird that he was getting this call from Travis, period, especially knowing about what had happened. So he decided to go and pick up Travis's brother, Dwayne, and tell him about the call. And when Dwayne heard about the call, he was also skeptical because he was like, how could that be my brother after knowing what had just happened to him? And why was he calling from this random phone? But obviously they want to find their brother. And if there's any chance that this could be Travis, they needed to investigate it. So they drove out to Heber, which was 33 miles away. And when Dwayne and Grant arrived at the gas station, they saw Travis and immediately got out of the car. And it was at this point that Dwayne was like, where have you been? You've been missing for five days. What happened to you, Travis? And Travis was obviously in complete disbelief because in his head, he had only been gone a few hours, but in fact, it had been five days since he had been last seen. And of course, because this was getting a bunch of news attention, Travis's sudden return out of nowhere made the news by Tuesday afternoon. Sheriff Gillespie speculated that Travis had been hit on the head and drugged potentially and then taken to a normal hospital where he had confused the details of a routine exam with something more unimaginable, which obviously Travis denied this, saying that his recent medical examination had found no trace of head trauma or drugs in his system after all, because obviously the authorities want to rule everything out and they want to rule out the most normal possibilities, and that would have been some type of head injury, maybe Travis got into an accident or something like that, but Travis vehemently denied that this is what had happened to him. And because the police weren't believing Travis, he even agreed to take a polygraph test in order to support his story. Obviously, the police agreed to give Travis a polygraph exam, in which Travis has passed several exams up until today. So in addition to polygraph exams, Travis agreed to go down with Dwayne to Scottsdale, Arizona, where they had a meeting with APRO consultant James A. Harder, who was going to hypnotize Travis in order to uncover more details about where he had been the previous five days. And after going through this hypnosis, Travis could only recall two hours of what happened out of the five days he had been missing. It's interesting that hypnosis worked so well for Travis because he said that it allowed him to verbalize his experience in greater detail without being overwhelmed by the anxiety of the trauma that he had just went through. And it's also how he even got the description of what the aliens looked like what his actual experience was aboard, whatever this flying saucer or craft was, it was all obtained through the hypnosis sessions, which just in general, hypnosis is a very popular tool by therapists in order to help victims of trauma and victims that go through experiences where they don't remember what had actually happened to them because of an injury they sustained or just something that rendered them unconscious. And this happens all the time, actually, that they use hypnosis in order to help them remember what had happened to him during this period that they didn't remember initially. In the end, despite Travis passing polygraph examinations, going through hypnosis, there still has been a lot of people and debunkers out there that do not believe his story whatsoever. And obviously people leverage all sorts of questions on him and want him to take all these tests and try to poke holes in his story. But 
Travis is one of those individuals who has maintained the same story all of these years. And not only that, he has physical evidence that backs up his story, including that his case is actually in the FBI files. He has doctors that did tests on him that proved he was not lying about the medical condition he was in and what he experienced. And not only that, one of the biggest pieces of physical evidence is the accelerated growth of the trees that are right in the area where the craft actually came down. And he actually has video footage of him out there showing off this area where you can clearly see the accelerated growth of this one area compared to the surrounding areas of these trees. One of the reasons why there's a lot of people that doubt his story and honestly think that this was just a complete hoax is because of the fact that Travis decided to write a book about his experiences. And he did that in 1978 when he published The Walton Experience, which he outlined his own narrative of what had happened to him and the aftermath. And then in 1993, Travis Walton wrote another book, which was then adapted into a movie called Fire in the Sky. And obviously this story turned into a movie, created some fame for Travis Walton, and it really helped get his story out there and a lot more people became aware of it which also led to a lot more people being skeptical of his story because now he's making movies, obviously starting to benefit from his story monetarily. But can you really fault him on that? I think it's hard for people to believe his story sometime because not only did he make money off of this film, but they also took his story and made it into like a straight up horror film because the aliens do all kinds of fucked up shit to him in this film. It was also mentioned that when Travis was talking to the movie director about details of his experience, uh, the director found his story a, a little boring. Travis's story wasn't very captivating and wouldn't hold somebody's interest, according to the director. Uh, so being shot in Hollywood, they blew a lot of things out of proportion, especially the alien encounter and the spacecraft A lot of details in the movie did not line up with Travis's actual experience. And like like you said, they were seeing it as an opportunity to scare people. So in the in the movie, Travis was in fact laying on a table with with a bright light above him. Uh, But he had a elastic type of material completely wrapped on his body, holding him down to the table causing him excruciating pain. And in the movie, the, the aliens were, were probing him and they had a device uh, that opened one of his eyes open. And, and basically they dropped what it appeared to be some kind of a sharp object into around his eye or into his eye, something like that. The movie definitely portrayed that image that that the aliens were evil, that they wanted to harm Travis, Uh, not that they they didn't tell the reality of it, how Travis's own story, he saw it as the aliens were helping him, um, taking care of him. Who knows what Travis really did experience when he was struck by that beam of lights. Uh, He did recall, though, that if that beam of light did cause him to go into cardiac arrest, he would have died in a very short amount of time. Even if his, his, his crew did pick him up and drove him back to the nearest town. Well, the nearest town was 30 minutes away from 
you know, the forest site that they w- they were working in or saw that UFO. And Travis had a high chance that, that he would have died on that drive home. So um, Travis did speak that the beam that came from that spacecraft was an accident and that the, the aircraft was taking off. And there's this whole theory that whatever shot Travis was just clearing any, like let's say an animal or something that was in the way from that spacecraft's takeoff position. I mean, kind of like an airplane, you don't want a bird flying into an airplane, right? And it could cause it to crash. So the aliens took that measure of clearing the way before they took off. Travis happened to be there at that time, got struck by the beam and the aliens might have saw that you know Travis was in fact a human, and they 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 knew his condition was critical, where they they had to bring him on board, and provide immediate medical attention, because I I, I think that from Travis's real story and not the movie, but Travis's real story was uh, those those aliens saved his life, which is a completely different take that the movie went with. Like they went with a horror type angle at this and making the aliens evil but in fact in reality according to travis these aliens or beings or whatever they are are like angels like they came and rescued him and saved him from this freak accident that they had just had with this human well i mean he did run up on this ufo and probably wasn't supposed to do that so it's i don't know it's hard to say whether or not you know you believe that story that they were really there to help him and save his life but i don't know man i think it could go either way because really they're not advanced enough that they can't control their laser beams on their ships and stuff. Like what is this shit? Like they fly across the galaxy, but they can't like make sure their ship doesn't like shoot. And when they see him coming up on the ship is what I'm trying to say. Like they wouldn't, they had to have known that there is these humans driving up on their craft and to just all of a sudden blast him. I think they were, you know, maybe not trying to abduct him, but saw him as just a threat because he was running up at him. Another reason that Travis thought the aliens were actually there to help him and weren't going to try to fuck with him or probe him is because that once they were done seemingly healing him from potentially having a heart attack or dying, they dropped him off at the edge of town of Heber so that he could walk back into town and get help as opposed to dropping him back off where they had picked him up where he would have probably died during the night from hypothermia because of the temperature and just the overall weather in that area. But Travis's story overall is one of those that I think has sort of evolved with time. And over the years, Travis remembers more and more from his experience. And just the more he speaks about it, which this guy travels all over the place and has for years doing interviews with at conferences and ufology seminars and all sorts of different things. I mean, there's a million interviews of him on YouTube and he's definitely been able to keep the same story. And obviously there's minor details that might change with time, but overall his story has stayed the same. And even though he came out with this movie fire in the sky, which was obviously a play up on this whole story and just a more crazy and scarier version of it, People became more skeptical because they're like, you're making money off this movie. This this didn't really happen to you. And despite all of this, he has continued to pass polygraph exams as well as the crew that he was with, which leads me to my next point as to why this is one of the most believed UFO alien encounter stories out there is because he had so many witnesses there that actually saw him 
being beamed by this craft and saw him get thrown back and witnessed him being taken by this UFO, which in most cases of UFO encounters and just alien abduction stories in general, there isn't this overwhelming amount of witnesses and other people that actually saw this craft. So this is why this story has gained so much mainstream publicity and is definitely one of the best known instances of alleged alien abduction. Now, because his story has gained so much popularity and and honestly, he has a following because of this, he's definitely become a UFO celebrity in a lot of ways. I mean, he's definitely a well-known name in the UFOlogy community. And with all that being said, it definitely makes a person wonder if his story is in fact true. So I want to ask you, Joel, what do you think overall of his story and what's your honest take on if you believe it or not? I believe Travis's story was true uh, because the way he could describe his uh, encounter with the flying saucer and with the aliens once he was on board uh, to very good detail, I mean, describing exactly what he saw when he was on there, uh, the feelings that he was having and uh, also how many witnesses there were in this case. Um, you know, all, all the crew members saw what they saw from the truck and like what, what was mentioned when they were speaking to the police, they were distraught. They, most of them were in, in tears and very concerned about Travis's well-being. especially, you know, they go back to the site. He wasn't there and all of that confusion and um, just having a, all of that media attention that they got and how everyone's story stayed the same throughout all of that. It's, it's very convincing to me. And just the fact that Travis mentioned in, in those interviews that he felt those aliens were helping him as opposed to hurting him and how they didn't cause any harm to him once he was on board the ship. And, and that's what the frustrating thing about the movie was, you know, being in, in Hollywood is they portrayed the, the scene on that ship completely different to what Travis's own testimony was. And yeah, just how Travis remained consistent with his story the whole time. And he was always open to interviews. He never closed himself off. He never like fell off the face of the earth after everything happened because he actually wanted to share with people his experience. And um, yeah, I, I just find it very uh, convincing and true. What about you? What, what do you think about uh, the whole story? Here's my thing with this story. There's things that makes me believe the story is true. The fact that he passed polygraph exams, the fact that he described everything in such great detail as far as his experience on board the ship, his experience with the aliens, as well as the fact that you mentioned that this was a positive experience for him and that they saved his life. Wouldn't it be easier to just lie and say it was a horrible experience and you know they really did fuck me up on there and did all this horrible shit that basically tortured me like what was portrayed in the movie? But on the flip side of things, it's very hard to believe individual stories like this because there is something to be gained by them. You know, there's fame. He definitely became a household name in the UFO community because of his story. Also, monetarily, I mean, he made money from this movie as well as from, you know, the books and his appearances at conferences and such things like that. But at the same time, you got to remember that if you do go through an experience like this, whether it's positive or negative, 
most people will monetize it because why not? I mean, if you have a crazy story to tell, why not, you know, make some money off of it? Doesn't make it any less true or not. But I think that's where skeptics often go is that they believe that they're just out here lying, making shit up in order to make fast cash basically. But then again, why would he make this up? You know, why would you make up such a profound story about being beamed by a UFO if it didn't really happen to you? Especially since we find out that he was never really interested in UFOs. It wasn't like this fantasy that he could have created. And I think the biggest, most convincing aspect of this case in general is the fact that his crew was there and witnessed the UFO as well. So I think all in all, it's very possible that this experience happened to Travis. Travis also did mention that he wasn't necessarily completely happy uh, with how the movie portrayed his story. And I, I found it very convincing that this stuff did happen to him because he said, if, if I had the opportunity to remake this movie, we are going to do it every event that actually happened and not let special effects or anything like that ruin it. Because I felt like the movie did not tell the right story and it did open up uh, some doors for skeptics out there because his, his book, the Walton experience was not exactly what the movie followed. And like, and like I said, the, the script writer of the movie just found his actual testimony a little bit boring and they don't want the audience to, I mean, what's the point of going through a whole movie and then just have it fail because the audience got bored and like that. So yeah, exactly. And I think that obviously the movie definitely did more harm to him and his case because it just, it opens you up for criticism and for people to come in and be like, Oh, you just did this for the movie and for the money. And so you didn't really have this profound experience, but at the end of the day, I think anything is possible. And I think many of these alien abduction stories could definitely be true. Obviously there's always fake shit out there. There's always hoaxers out there that are going to try to fake stuff. But at the end of the day, I think Travis Walton is definitely one of the most authentic people as far as alien encounters go. And I think for somebody that was abducted by aliens, I think this is a definitely a very hopeful story that aliens are, if they are here and they are abducting us, it's not for reasons that Hollywood seems to make us think that they're here for like a, you know, probing us or doing weird experiments on us or things like that. But in fact that maybe they're just curious about us and they just want to check us out and see what we're up to. And they did accidentally hurt Travis and they felt bad about it. And so they basically saved his life. So it's truly a profound story and, and one that I think people will have mixed opinions on. So let us know either in the comments here on YouTube or on social media, what you guys think of Travis's story and if you believe it is true or not. But we'll end today's episode there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of the Lights Out Podcast. And if you did, be sure to leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to. And also make sure you guys are subscribing on iTunes and following on Spotify. It definitely helps us out a lot if you do that. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, lights out, everybody. <laughs>